Mark A. Altman, Darren Docterman, Ashley Edward Miller. Three fans who became professionals and then became... Trexperts. Inglorious Trexperts. Listen wherever you find podcasts or go to trexpertsplus.com. Virginia, there may not be a Santa Claus, but there is a Galaxy Con, and guess who's coming? <laughs> it's going to be us, the Inglorious Trexperts in As Richmond, in- Virginia. Inglorious Live Tour 2023 continues. Wow. Darren and me, Mark A. Altman, will be in Richmond at GalaxyCon on, uh, when is it, Darren? It's March 24th through 26th. March 24th to March 26th in lovely Richmond, Virginia. And there are going to be a ton of great guests. But none of that matters because we're there. We're there. We are a ton of great guests. We are indeed, and we're excited because GalaxyCon is where it's at. These guys put on great shows with great guests, a great dealer's room, and plenty of entertainment. And And more. And more. That's exactly. (laughs) The illusion of beauty and more. So uh, I'm I'm really excited, Darren. It's going to be a great chance to... um, I was going to say a great chance for you to meet the fans. That's right. uh, For me to meet the fans, not you. That's right. (laughs) That's right. I'll be eluding uh, deadly scooter accidents. But uh, but I'm 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 excited because, uh, like I said. uh, the the Inglorious Live Tour, or I, as I call it, my farewell tour. This is like uh, the Who, you know. I'm I'm on my farewell tour, but we know how that turned out. Uh, they've been on the same farewell tour now for 50 years. That's right. Um, <laughs> uh, 40 that years. A, that I mean. was a Godfather reference. Godfather <laughs> two, actually. Yeah, they died died the same heart attack since. But uh, but it's 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 gonna be it's gonna be great. Uh, Jody Whitaker is gonna be there. Rosario Dawson, Kevin Smith, uh, Bill Shatner, Brent Spiner. Um, no, this is Columbus. That's Columbus. <laughs> That's Columbus. You gotta I'm click talk- on the gotta click on the Richmond one. I'm talking about Richmond, Virginia. I don't think they have all of their guests up they, yet. They don't. Um, uh, but Vincent but we're gonna be there. gonna be there. David Tennant's gonna be there. Oh, one of our favorite people. You know who's gonna be there? Not only is Bill Shatter gonna be there. Walt Koenig's gonna be there. We love Walt. Oh, good. Yeah, it'd be good to see him. Maybe we can. Uh, maybe maybe we'll, we can uh, show him another movie he hasn't seen in thirty years. <laughs> Jonathan Frakes will be there. Gates is going to be there, and nice. uh, they're just starting to announce some of these guests. But the list goes on and on, um, and it's going to be oh, Mariel Hemingway from my favorite movie Manhattan. Nice, and uh, maybe if we can moderate a panel with her. I guess she's there for Superman Four, but we can talk about personal best in Manhattan. Oh, I think they'll be, be go over the heads of the audience. They'll be like, what? 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 What's going on here? Um, Sarah <laughs> Douglas is going to be there. We haven't seen her since, oh, uh, be, since Lola's. Lola's. <laughs> yeah. Superman. That'll be great. Uh, Mark Pillow, Nuclear Man, is going to be there. Nice. And of course, the great Barry Boswick uh, yes. will be there. Star of such legendary movies as Megaforce. So uh, it's going to be a ton of fun. We're going to be there. We hope you'll be there too. Uh, check out galaxycon.com for all the details and we'll see you in Richmond, Virginia this March. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. This is Darren Dockerman. And this is Ashley Edward Miller. 
We, we are. are. <laughs> yeah, I just thought you needed a little help there, Darren. No, I don't need any help. We are the inglorious Tracksperts <laughs> with special guest star. Robert Meyer Burnett. Yeah. Well, it's great to be back here with you, ne'er do wells. Well, that's not true. We we often do well. That's right. We do okay. (laughs) Some better than others. But um, but anyway, it's 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 great because we're back for part six of our multi-part holiday countdown. We're deep into the new year already, um, and uh, we're still counting down. But we're running out of road, which means, will your favorite character make the cut? There's only one way to find out, and that's to keep listening to the holiday countdown. We didn't say what holiday. (laughs) It's the Arbor Day holiday countdown. By the time you get done listening to this, it will be Arbor Day. That's 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 true. And uh, Rob, it'll be interesting. Rob, unfortunately, is a little out of it with the flu to see if he can keep up his uh, his usual uh, avuncular outgoing uh, effusive self. I have a feeling he must go on. He'll power through. Oh, yeah. uh, uh, Darren and I just got back in the town a little jet lagged. But uh, but again, this is too exciting to give a second a second best effort. We we have to go on. We must go on. <laughs> Wrong franchise. <laughs> Everybody's going to bring their their A game. So uh, before we uh, continue with the countdown, I got to ask. This was a obviously uh, this will have happened quite a while ago for you listening, but it just recently happened when we recorded this. What was your initial response to the Indiana Jones trailer? Mm-hmm. I, got a, big, of, of I got a big wait and see. W- big wait and see. I will tell you, I don't love the title. But it's a big wait and see. Who doesn't love Indiana Jones, the character? Yeah, I, I mean, it it looks promising. Um, you know, I'm excited, but uh, I don't like the title either. But you know, if that's the worst thing about it, great. <laughs> you yeah, know, I mean, you know, it's it's like uh, Indiana Jones and the Duck of Death. Yeah, right. <laughs> the Duck of Death. God, Robert, the Duck of Death sounds great. I would watch that. Do you remember, I'm sure you do, the Sunday that we found out the first Star Wars prequel would be called The oh. Phantom Menace? Dude, that was that was one of our legendary Lola nights that uh, we we spent the entire night, hours, making fun of that title. Hours. Everyone in the bar. Now, I have to admit, unlike the movie, <laughs> the title is held up better than the movie. Like, I, I don't hate the title the way I did then, where no. it sounds like a bad serial. But when they first announced it, you know, coming mm-hmm. on the heels of Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, and uh, uh, it was like the Phantom Menace. It was like, it was like you know, is the Rocketeer in it? Is, uh, you know, Flash Gordon going to show yeah. up? <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, it was it was not, um, not great. We, we, not we, great. We couldn't believe it. We absolutely... Could not believe it, and uh, that was that was a great evening. Darren, were you there? Or was this before we we knew you? No, 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 I was there. You were there because because oh. uh, I I had the uh, I had the trailer on my little uh, DVD player, right? Oh yeah, on the iPod, yeah, the video no, iPod. No. no, on a little DVD player. This oh. was before the iPod because <laughs> that's how Darren rolls. That's yeah. right. Yeah, you remember that was, God, uh, magical. How- and and that's how I kind of feel about the dial of death or whatever the dial of uh, the dial of destiny. What is it? This the is my brother Daryl, and this is my other brother Daryl of destiny. The, the dial the, of destiny. 
Dial, dial of soap. I don't dial know. of density. Dill. Dill. No. You know, my attitude always, you know, hope for the best. And so I, I, I thought the trailer was good. I thought a lot of, a lot of practical effects. I, James Mangold is passionate. He's excited. He's a fan. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. So I can't wait to see it. I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put my money on a lot of practical effects. Uh, a lot yeah, of those shots either. look completely put together. Well, I agree. Uh, I will say that I, I think that, that uh, Jim Mangold is incredibly talented and, um, you know, he is a very dedicated, committed filmmaker. Like he throws himself into it. Um, and I think that he has made some truly awesome movies, you know, whether it's walk the line, 310 to Yuma, um, you know, Ford versus Ferrari, Logan for the love of God. Uh, the guy is just terrific. I, I, I don't know, man. It's like, Hopefully, this you, isn't this isn't Ford versus franchise. Ford versus, yeah, exactly. You know, oh. My only, the only thing that, like, aside from, I see a lot of CG uh, that that worries me is that last scene with the whip, which feels like it's a reference to a scene that this film doesn't seem to understand. Um, that you know, it's not about like. It's not about Indiana Jones busting out the whip and doing cool tricks with the whip. You know, it's that even though we all know the story behind that scene where he pulls out the gun and like he shoots the guy with the swords, it told us something about the character that he was eminently practical. Uh, and then he kind of loses. And there's nothing practical about that. Well, but they, just, already, they already played that great gag in Temple of Doom where he goes for the gun again and he yeah. doesn't have it. Yeah. Against the swordsman on the bridge, which is a great callback to That's Raiders. terrific. Like, this is just. Well, I, it, there's today. another thing about that scene that gives me pause. When all of the villains with all of their guns start firing at the window repeatedly, when yeah. the target they were aiming at just ducked, makes, makes it, it, it ruins the, call it verisimilitude, but it ruins the credibility of it all. Not if the movie's called The Duck of Death, like Darren suggests. So. That's right. The Don't Duck of Death. <laughs> But I gotta say, look, you know, I'm the cynic of this group, and 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 if I am, maybe not, <laughs> maybe not of this group. But uh, if I'm the Fox Mulder, all of a sudden, I want to believe, man. I want to believe, and I'm, you know, I do that with every with all these franchises. I, I I hope and and pray they're good, and then if they're not, call it like I see it. Well, I definitely want it to be good. I don't want to be cynical about it. Um, I've had a few exchanges with James Mangold over Twitter over the last couple of days. Ah. Because oh. I had asked him about how the film, because he's active on Twitter. He actually said he shoots his movies using two anamorphic lenses, and that's it. Huh. Oh, that's interesting. Two pieces of glass. And I'm like, wow, that's impressive. Well, you know, this is the part of the show where people say we're gatekeeping. But you know what? I'm going to say something controversial. I think gatekeeping is good. Me too. I, I think that gatekeeping from people who are, you know, there are different levels of expertise. You know, like I wouldn't begin to tell somebody how to go install an air conditioner. I wouldn't know. I'd probably end up on the ground, right? Because I have no expertise about that. You know what I do know about? Film and television. It's like everybody wants to be a writer. Everyone thinks they can be a writer, yep. but they can't, right? And it's the same thing with movies and TV. It's fine. Everybody enjoy what you want, but there is there is good and there is bad film and television. It's yeah. not subjective. There there is there there is no. a, there well, is there is there is allowance for taste. 
Yes, but there are some things that are just objectively, no, that's actually just not competent. Well, <laughs> you know, also cogent criticism isn't gatekeeping. That's right. That is correct. And 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 you know, no one's keeping anybody uh, unless somebody's building a wall around something and saying you can't go in and get that thing. There's not really gatekeeping going on. You, if you like something, have the courage of your um, conviction. And, and don't allow another person's opinion to sway your opinion. And Although it should sometimes. This movie <laughs> might be great. It might be great. I the only gatekeeping is. going on is not releasing the original versions of the Star Wars movies. Yeah, that's for sure. Mm. And that is gatekeeping. That is that. There's a it's a giant gate. It's a force field. It's force field keeping, or it's the blast doors. It's like open the blast doors. Let us into the vault. Let you know. I, I mean, I told you. I mean, I went to see it, and you were there at the uh, that wonderful screening at the Academy where they showed the the eighty two print. You know, which only which had the episode for New Hope, but otherwise is identical mm -hmm. to the original release. And it was glorious. It was. It, I mean, everyone there could just see immediately. This is so much better than the special edition. It, 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 you know, it just aesthetically, there's no mismatch, mismatch between the bad CGI of the early 90s with the beautiful documentary, you know, uh, uh, look of the film from 77. No, I mean, and, and, and that's, I think that's legitimate. That's the most legitimate criticism of all about the special editions is that there, you know, when you went into Moss, uh, to Moss Eisley, it was a, it was a, the armpit of 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 the worst planet ever. Yeah, and it was this dusty. It was like it was some, a rundown cowboy town. Yeah, rundown cowboy town that had with a perpetual drought. Until now, where it's full of all kinds of activities, and Jawas are riding their Rontos, and there's all kinds of droids in the air, and it it actually changes the whole feel of what's happening. And then, of course, everyone talks about Han Solo, but when what happens now is that Han Solo looks incompetent. Yeah. You know, Greedo yeah. has threatened his life McClunky. over my dead body. That's the idea. That yeah. was, that gives McClunky. Solo, yeah, that, that gives Solo all, all that he needs. I mean, this is an old West thing. You know, it was funny. I was watching the 4K of High Plains Drifter, the Clint Eastwood movie. So mm. good. I hadn't seen it in a while. I forgot in the first 20 minutes of that movie, he kills two dudes and rapes a woman. And I was like, "Wow, I I didn't remember this." And Mariana Hill is in it, Helen, Doctor Helen Noel. Oh yeah, and she's that's the woman at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, and it's it's you know you look at this stuff and it's it's like who, who we're not doing anyone any favors by pretending. I mean, I understand that there's maybe there's a extenuating circumstances, but you know I watched the 4K of Close Encounters the other day too, and there's all three versions of the movie on that. Mm -hmm. Disc and you can watch whatever you, whichever one you want. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, here's the thing. Apparently, whenever we talk about Star Wars on the show, no one cares. So uh, I'm gonna. Turn <laughs> we the care. I mean, like we we care, right? It's true. But I swear, it's so weird. People would rather hear us talk about Space 1999 than Star Wars. I mean, like literally, it seems like every time we talk about Star Wars, well, I don't really care about that. And it, like I can tell you, not that I follow the ratings that carefully, but you know, the 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 the, the, the plays on the Star Wars episodes are considerably lower than our big numbers on Star Trek and even Space 1999. What the? <laughs> I mean, the Space 1999 thing is a little joke. It's supposed to be for us. Nobody's supposed to care about those episodes, but apparently they the do. The thing we did in Alaric 30 years ago. Dude, Meanwhile, the first season of that show is great. 
Yeah, no, I know. I'm, I, I like Space 1999. And I, I, but, you know, it's just like nobody else does. Apparently, there are people that I mean, do. That's but, not true. Okay. Uh, I, oh, that's impossible. That reminds but, uh, me. I need to clean up my eagle and show you guys. Anyway, but well, let's let's proceed. Is that is that like a metaphor for something? No, it's my real oh. actual toy space. My eagle, dude. You know how many eagles I have in here? I like the original Betty. eagle eagle toy thingy it, from is that like the Mattel eagle-y? toy from um, yep. Eagly and pe- Peacemaker. Yeah, Eagly and Peacemaker. Exactly. Eagly and Peacemaker. I like Peacemaker. I know Peacemaker was great. I know we didn't talk about it when we were doing our best TV of the year because, you know, it's not cool to say that that, but that show was great. It was great. <laughs> let's save it for deck 78. Okay. 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 Let's get on. Let's <laughs> yeah, get on with Mom. the countdown, especially for the people that are listening to this three years from now, because right. this is an evergreen. They'd be like, what are these guys? Talk? Who cares? What, what, what is, is it? I know yeah. we should never talk about anything that's in current because it dates the episodes. And so many people go back to the old episodes and, and listen to them. And it's like, we talk about something that's of the moment. It's like, it, it's, it, it's way wasteful. It's wasteful. Okay. So we're going to start as part six of the holiday countdown. And we're jumping right in with number 35. It's Pavel Chekhov. Some more blood, Chekhov. A needle wouldn't hurt, Chekhov. Take off your shirt, Chekhov. Roll over, Chekhov. Breathe deeply, Chekhov. Blood sample, Chekhov. Model sample, Chekhov. Skin sample, Chekhov. If, if I live long enough, I'm going to run out of samples. Oh, yes, I'll live. But I won't enjoy it. Now, we love Pavel. We really do. And the thing about him... This was a character, as as most fans know, was introduced at the top of the second season. Um, Gene Roddenberry tells a story that's probably apocryphal about how Pravda wrote an article about why are there no Russians when we were the first in space? And there are no Russians on your integrated crew of space explorers. So he said, I'll put a Russian in. The fact of the matter is the monkeys were really popular and the Beatles were really popular. And he got a mop top guy in a wig, a really bad wig at first. Uh, and put him uh, at the helm. And, of course, that was the wonderful Walter Koenig, who had also been in um, The Lieutenant and was a pal of Joe D'Augusta and got this role in Star Trek. And he's been complaining about it ever since, but we love Walt Koenig. Walt Koenig <laughs> loves Star Trek. And, uh, it, it, you know, it's funny because he got really lucky because he ended up in some of the best episodes of the second season, like Trouble with Triples, because George Takei went off to go do the Green Berets with John Wayne and got stuck doing it because it went over. And so all these great episodes that had been written for George end up becoming Walter episodes. That and- was all uh, That was all Bill's fault. <laughs> <laughs> he told John Wayne to keep me in. <laughs> keep me filming. He stifled <laughs> my career in Starfleet. Ooh. But, you know, the thing is, uh, there's that, you know, the fun runner with the idea that everything great has, comes from Russia, that everything was invented by the Russians. I mean, you know, sometimes when you create an archetype and, and, and you know, the, it, with the with the stick and it, 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 it's memorable, like Chekhov is a memorable character. He's a fun character. Um, he doesn't really get his own episodes other than sort of Spectre the Gun. Uh, which was his episode, The Way to Eden. Right. So, uh, you know, but he's a wonderful supporting character. He has great lines. I mean, just those little moments, like in a muck time, when him and Sulu are trading looks over, you think we should plot a course for Vulcan again? You know, it's just, uh, 
he's he's really terrific. And, you know, he's some wonderful moments in the movies and Star Trek two. And I know Darren doesn't love the nuclear vessels and Star Trek four. I think it's a hoot. And, uh, you know, Walter Koenig is somebody who has really embraced his place in the Star Trek universe. And, uh, I have to say, look, I think Anson Mount was a, a wonderful actor and a, a terrible loss, a tragic loss. No, not, not uh, Anson Mount. Uh, not Anson Mount. Anton Yelchin. Anton Yelchin is still very much alive. Yeah, 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 with yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. All that people are, you know, <laughs> oh, my God. oh, my God, Anson Mount is dead. Uh, but a, a, Anton Yelchin, uh, a wonderful talent, young talent, who 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 died tragically. Um, I wasn't thrilled about that character in the J.J. movies because it, they, they they lost the thread the grounding to reality and just made him a big goof. The whole Russian thing that the accent was taken to an extreme and, you know, the joke of, you know, everything from Russia and, and it wasn't necessary. They had all these characters. They just made fun of him. They made fun of him. They didn't need Chekhov in those pictures. Maybe introduce him to the second or third movie. You know, it's like you already had all these other characters. You don't need him or put Eric's in it. But, um, but uh, but they did, and you know uh, it, you know again it's just a horrible thing what happened to Anton Yelchin. But um, Chekhov was not well served by those movies. But uh, um, he he has some cool stuff to do in the movies, and uh, you know he has some great stuff, and it's just a really solid member of the uh, the crew in the original Star Trek. And in the movies, he gets to scream in basically every film. Something happens, he screams. Star Trek the motion picture, he gets scanned. He screams. Star Trek 2, there's a bug in his ear. He screams. Does he and scream mirror, in Star Trek 2? He screams. And he's good, Mirror Mirror. He's really he's, good. He's a, he's a screamer. He's a screamer. Yes, he is. <laughs> what, what, Darren, you've been awfully quiet. What, 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 what do you think about Chekhov? I, I like Chekhov a lot. Um, I, I, like, uh, I like Walter more. Uh, but uh, Chekhov is a is a interesting character because he he gives sort of uh, sometimes the audience reaction to things, and uh, it's uh, it's good to have a slightly younger perspective on what's going on. Um, but uh, you know, occasionally it's a little it's a little much with his uh, sort of asides to himself. Uh, blood sample Chekhov, marrow sample Chekhov. It's it's a Only little bit the size of my head. Yeah, it's a little bit. Self-indulgent, but uh, you're just look. upset that he almost got the Enterprise destroyed because he didn't know the phasers were cut off in the event of an engine imbalance. That's you just oh man, it's Star Trek well, motion picture. Look, we've talked about the fact that Chekhov is pretty much an incompetent officer. Um, he can't find City Alpha Six. Uh, he can't, uh, you know, he he can't get the phasers to work. He can't uh, operate the photon torpedoes when he needs to. I mean, uh, he's he's not very good at his job, and uh, that's just the way it is. Okay, fine. Be like that. Number 35 was Chekhov. Now we move on to Darren Docterman and a character he does like at number 34. A character I do love very much is uh, in the, uh, is it the penultimate or last episode no, of the second last, season? Not the penultimate, the last episode. Okay. The season finale. Season finale of Star Trek. It, would have been, it could have been the series finale. Well, it, it could have, but and it could have been the series premiere of Assignment Earth. Gary Seven, the 007 of Star Trek. All right. Agents are male and female, descendants of human ancestors taken from Earth approximately 6,000 years ago. They're the product of generations of training for this mission. Problem. 
Earth technology and science has progressed faster than political and social knowledge. Purpose of mission? To prevent Earth civilization from destroying itself before it can mature into a peaceful society. Incomplete. But sufficient. Location of agents unreported for three days. Why didn't you say so in the first place? No, don't answer that. Simply begin search immediately. Recheck all news broadcasts. Decode any government intercepted message. I am aware of proper search procedures, 194. He's, uh, he's a secret agent from outer space, and he has a bunch of uh, neat tech gadgets. He has a, uh, a hot little assistant, and he has a cat that may or may not be a cat. Can I tell you a funny story about that before you go on? Yeah. You knew your well of this. So we printed on Facebook uh, a picture of Gary Seven. Oh, yes, cat, yes, yes. And we wrote all, Almighty Isis, right? Okay. Because Facebook, that's the name of the cat. Because that's the name of the cat. A cat is named Isis. Yeah. Right, and it's also a reference to a free enterprise. Right. So, uh, so, 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 Facebook almost threw us off Facebook, and 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 took down the picture because we use that word. Because Facebook it. is stupid. Yeah, and and then there's no way to protest. It's all yeah. automated. It's Wait, all what, run by computers. What word did you use that ISIS? ISIS. ISIS. Oh, oh, almighty ISIS. I wasn't, you know, my brain goes to either the Saturday morning cartoons or Star yeah. Trek. Yeah. So, yeah. so we're referring to the cat, right? From yeah. Simon yeah. Earth. So we got dinged. And there's no way to even protest. It's all done through computer. And it's like you can't even talk it to death. Yeah. You know, it doesn't want to hear you. Well, you Congratulations, know, wait till our Dunzel. AI overlords, there's going to be more and more and more of this. Wait till... The Kafka-esque trial starts happening to all people yeah. that gets them, get imprisoned by whatever AI thing. Well, it's uh, it's definitely ovular. <laughs> well, yeah. Anyway, so Gary Seven with his cat Isis uh, is uh, he's uh, brought back to Earth in uh, uh, 1967 or 68. And uh, he is uh, charged with finding out what happened to his other operatives uh, who were supposed to be doing a mission here. They were supposed to be uh, stopping the uh, rocket launch at McKinley Rocket Base uh, that was carrying a uh, nuclear warhead. And uh, Gary Seven is transporting to, the, uh, to Earth and he's intercepted by the Enterprise. And the funny thing is, when he beams aboard, he immediately looks at Spock and says, humans with a Vulcan, you're, you're from the future, Captain. <laughs> so, uh, you know, obviously he knows more than anybody there. And uh, they don't know who he is. He, uh, played by uh, Robert Lansing, Gary Seven is the coolest dude you've ever seen in Star Trek. He just is. He has sort of that stance like a panther. That he that he he walks around with his uh, sport coat and his uh, blasting uh, laser pen. Um, it's uh, I love the episode when I was a kid. Uh, I trusted as a mother, um, and it's so fun to see this sort of side story uh, going on in the Star Trek universe. Uh, that uh, he was uh, taken from Earth when he was very young and trained by aliens uh, in various mystical ways of magic and science and uh he's the coolest and of course terry gar 
when she was, uh, what, 22 years old. Um, amazingly luminous and mm. uh, just a great character. She's sort of a semi-hippie uh, girl that uh, doesn't really know who to trust. But not and, in the, the uh, way to Eden kind of way. Not yeah. in the She's way to Eden mod. Kind of way. Yeah, mod. She's a mod. That's be- that's a better description. Um, but, She's a uh, beat girl. <laughs> Not quite. A little later than that, but uh, yeah. no, she's she's great, and there the pairing of them is uh, really good. And it the episode promises something that it that was never delivered a uh, a series of them doing various adventures uh, throughout history, basically, and uh, being able to go anywhere uh, with the use of the Beta Five computer and the little green block on his desk. And uh, I just loved it. And Gary Seven was the coolest dude next to Captain Kirk. My only question about Gary Seven, this was frankly always my question about Gary Seven. Like, I don't know if it kept me up at night, but I thought about it every single time. What happened to Gary's one through six? (laughs) They weren't weren't entirely entirely successful. successful. (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, one of the things that, that I really can't stand about modern iterations of Star Trek is when they follow up on these things as they did in the second season of Discovery. Or pardon me, the second Picard. season of Picard. Yeah. And it it The Watchers. It, it really, it really feels like I mean, I understand that it's canonical and you can you can why not add to these things? But when when it turns out not only did they expound on the episode but then they conflated it with travelers as well. That the yeah. travelers of which Wesley Crusher is one was in fact the alien race that um, was sending these people all around the around the galaxy. That's and dumb. I, it, dumb. It, it was monumentally dumb. And it's funny because I'm sure someone thinks that they're it, it, no. This is an alien race that's hidden. You know, yeah. it's, it's, they, no one knows who they are, even in, even in the modern, even in the 23rd and 24th centuries. And it was better that way. But now, and that the, the fact that Gary Seven was like, there's only one operative or two operatives at a place at the time. I mean, they just, it was not extrapolated upon in a, in an interesting way. And what's sad about that is Gary Seven has been in comic books, he's been in novels. Uh, John Byrne did a whole series of, of the great John Byrne of, of Gary Seven's adventures. Gary Seven was, was, has appeared in multiple authors' books. And they did. Well, my, my favorite iteration is in Greg Cox's, uh, Khan oh, yeah. books. Where yeah. Gary Seven is personally responsible for the saving of Khan. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Which is kind and, of awesome. And, and they did all of these things. And it, it, it's frustrating when there have been better iterations of that. Then when you see writers of the modern shows go back and try and, Use these things and and not use them as well as they've been used. They cherry pick the uninteresting things and latch onto those. Yes, yes. Well, look, I I think that um, Gary Seven is a character that is so popular. I think if you you polled most people, say what character that briefly appeared in Star Trek would you most want to see come back? It's Gary Seven, and it's really not. You know, it 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 would be so much fun to see this done um, at some point. Yeah. I would love to see that. Why they and didn't course, do that? I of course, know. Ashley, he's Gary Seven because of 007. Well, yeah, of, of course. course. I figured, you know, was that no, 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 no one cares about 004. Who is number 
One, you are Gary Seven. Yeah, but you could do Gary Eight, no. Gary Nine. Gary Eight? What? Yeah, that's why yeah. he's so fat. Yeah. I, uh, you know what I used to love about the Equalizer? What? I used to, I used to like imagine in my head that the uh, the control character played by Robert Lansing was uh, was actually Gary Seven. Who was ah. I yep. thought that. that was my my fun little. Uh, I just don't know cannon. why people are all upset that Lashana Lynch is playing Gary Seven in the next Star Trek. Done, done. <laughs> okay. But um, so anyway, we I think we can all agree that. Um, Gary Seven is a great character. So, and he, so and he, say we all. And if he'd come back, I think he would have been higher on our lists. Because he's Absolutely. just so cool. He's so cool. And he has the greatest mini bar in all of Star Trek. Totally. Yes, I think he, he makes does. a mean martini. He does. He but does. the trouble is, who would play him today? Yeah. There's, there's no one. Nobody's no one. that cool. John Hamm. John Hamm? Really. Okay, maybe somebody a little even like, who could play him? Come on, let, let's let's figure this out before we move on. Shia LaBeouf. Yeah. Um, who could play Gary Seven? Fozzie. You know, uh, you know, but it got to be somebody who's like you feel like could be in a suit. But you know who I think would have made a great Kirk in the JJ movies? You know, um, the guy from uh, the um, uh, um, uh-huh. who's on White Lotus now, who is in the. Um, Divergent movies. Uh, what's his name? Oh yeah, um, that he's. He, I like that guy. I think he would have been Theo James, right? Theo yeah. James. Uh, yeah. He he would have been great for Kirk, and I think that yeah, he might be able. To, uh, you need somebody who's um. Well, who who played who played Pike in the JJ movies? Oh, uh, oh Bruce Greenwood. Bruce Greenwood. Bruce Greenwood would make a good character. I think you need. Yeah. You know what? You know what? It's kind of like Henry Cavill in Uncle. You know. Yeah. Yeah. You don't like him? And no. I guess you can't hire, uh, uh, what's his name? The cannibal. The from can- uncle. Anthony <laughs> Hopkins? No, 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 the other one, the real one. Johnny Hammer. Oh. Hammer. He'd be good. Yeah. You need somebody Too who young. just is quietly cool. Yeah. yeah. And somebody that you believe has incredible amounts of education. Right. It, it, it needs to be more of a. A James Bond yeah, without but Army Hammer appeal. went to Harvard twice. Oh, yeah, yeah, but he didn't show it. <laughs> but I mean, you know, this guy's a s- smooth operative. Yeah, Matt Ooh, Smith. Come, on. you know, hey man, a younger Stellan Skarsgård could have been a Gary Seven. Yeah, that's yeah, true. maybe. Mm. Yeah, Matt hmm. Matt Smith looks too much like Frankenstein. Yeah, Matt Smith has a weird look. Like, yeah, I, yeah, I think you true. need somebody who's more traditionally handsome. Yep. I mean, Matt Smith is amazing. He's a great actor and yeah. he's fantastic in House of the Dragon. But he's but- goofy looking. He has an interesting, interesting look. It's a very particular um, look. Very particular look. Who would be good? Who is that guy? And mm-hmm. this is very frustrating. I, I don't know, man. But we could spend hours on this one. Hours could seem like days. <laughs> <laughs> By the okay. way, why don't we table this? Yeah, we'll table this. We'll come back to this. You know what? This is what we should do. We should do an episode where we. we this will help out Paramount Plus. We'll recast key roles from Star Trek for a That's new a generation. Good idea. And 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 that's what we'll do. So Gary Seven will be one of them. And they all and then, have to be under twenty five. Yes, yeah, right, exactly. Okay. So um that brings us to Robert Meyer Burnett, number thirty three. The doctor no, is in. Number thirty three. Uh this is a character that we only saw once or really twice or three times, depending on how you want to count it. Um, this is a character that Gene Ronberry created. 
and was one of the original characters created for the entire Star Trek franchise and who's one half of one of the great foundational relationships of what what Star Trek relationships are. And I'm, I'm of course, speaking of the great character actor John Hoyt and his character of Dr. Boyce, Dr. Phil Boyce. What's that? I don't say there's anything wrong with me. I understand we uh, picked up a distress signal. That's right. Unless we get anything more positive on it, it seems to me the condition of our own crew takes precedent. I'd like to lord the ship's doctor's opinion, too. Oh, I concur with yours, definitely. No good, I'm glad you do. Because we're going to stop first at the Vega colony and replace anybody who needs hospitalization. And also... The devil you putting in there, Ice? Who wants a warm martini? What makes you think I need one? Sometimes, a man will tell his bartender things he'll never tell his doctor. Who was introduced in the cage, and then we saw canonically, because the cage is not canonical, only the presentation of it in the Menagerie Parts 1 and 2 are... So, uh, Dr. Boyce was, of course, the chief medical officer on board the Enterprise when Pike was in command. And uh, in his brief appearances and his interactions with Jeffrey Hunter as Pike, he established himself as an indelible presence. He was incredibly well-written. He has dialogue like, a man either lives life as it happens to him, meets it head-on and licks it where he turns his back on it and starts to wither away. Watch it, Ashley. <laughs> I, see those, <laughs> I see those cogs going. And, uh, uh, and what I loved about him is I love John Hoyt because he was in a movie called One World Collide, which is sure. a favorite movie of mine when I was a kid. Great but villain. What was a uh, great villain? And, and Twilight Zone. This is so great Twilight, Twilight Zone. He was in multiple Outer Limits episodes. Uh, he was a mainstay of, of series television in, in the 60s. But... What's really interesting about this character is this is one of the core foundational characters of all of Star Trek. And the relationship that he shared with the captain of the ship was um, was a key key component of, of the episode. The scene, talk about a bar. If Gary Seven has the great mini bar, well, Dr. Boyce has the great portable martini martini. Uh, uh, suitcase like the Saint Bernard in that Warner Brothers cartoon. He, he can he can take with him. But the, what's what? I mean, I love this character even as a kid, and I think one of the I guess one of the the things that was most disappointing to me in bringing back Captain Pike in Discovery and in Strange New Worlds was that they didn't uh, bring this character back. And this was this was a Roddenberry. They, as a matter of fact, they replaced a Roddenberry creation with a character that Roddenberry, uh, I don't believe, created, unless he did write a Private Little War. Um, uh, and it it always bothered me that Pike. I think that one of the things that Pike is missing on Strange New Worlds, and I think Strange New Worlds is it's painfully lacking the relationship that Boyce and Pike should be having on that show. Because basically, um, especially with all the, 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 this, this, this thing that they've given Pike, he's very aware of his uh, injury that's going to befall him later in the series, which doesn't really make sense to me at all why they incorporated that. But having Dr. Boyce there would go a long way toward helping him deal with these things. And 
Uh, it, it's really Dr. Boyce is a casualty of the time. And I think it's unfair and it bothers me every time I watch Strange New Worlds. It bothered me in Discovery and they haven't alleviated that. And it really says a lot that they feel that a character that Gene himself created could be replaced, indeed erased from Strange New Worlds. Well, I, I, I think it's only due to one thing that, uh, you know, all the... Uh, all the uh, talk about uh, representation and uh, and uh, you know varied casting uh, doesn't cover ageism at all, and I think this is ageism. Well, yes. I'll, t- I'll tell you, you mentioned ageism, but I, I think that um, one of the things I, I so liked about that character and I liked about the cage so much was that Pike needed to keep an arm's length relationship from the crew yes. because yep. he was the captain, and he may have to send them to die. And he also, he needed to keep his distance, you know, just because he, and they were, and everyone was younger too, you know, he was a little, yep. a little older. And the one person that he could be honest with, that he could, could who was his father confessor, yeah, was Boyce. Yep. And I, it's funny because I think that's a dynamic that actually would really benefit the new show totally. because Anson is a little older and more seasoned than the rest of the cast who's very young. And I think he needs to sort of keep his distance a little more. He's not their pal. He's their captain. And he needs someone that he can talk to. Yeah. And they made that in a way, I guess, sort of Rebecca, but as number one. But, uh, you know, I, I feel there's a huge um, uh, hole left by um, Dr. Boyce not being there. You know, somebody suggested online, and I thought it was a great suggestion because I can't think of anything better. Like if you were gonna cast Dr. Boyce in Strange New Worlds, the guy to play him is clearly Jeff Combs. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, Jeff would just nail that. He would be great. But I, I, I feel like, you know, and again this isn't about Strange New Worlds as much as it's about the cage. Right. You know, it's a wonderful monologue that John Hoyt gives. And yes, you know, you know, you could, you, you know, he's not McCoy. He's not this, you know, Southern, you know, uh, uh, aphorism spouting good old boy, you know, in the way that, you know, D. Kelly just made McCoy so special. But he's really interesting in his own way. The doctor who brings drinks to the captain's quarters, yeah. he yeah. knows the captain needs to, he knows the captain is hurting. Yeah. From what happened on Rigel. Yeah. And he he's keeping it in, right? He's internalizing it. And, you know, Dr. Boyce is, you know, he's also part therapist. And Dr. Boyce knows when to tell the captain that he's full of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he says, oh, yeah, you and Orion slave trader. Yeah. yeah. I mean. Give me a break. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that one scene is so great. It's so great that Roddenberry rips it off and does the same scene in Balance of Terror pretty much right. between McCoy and, and Kirk. And the amazing thing is it works just as well. Yep. Uh, yep. <laughs> but uh, it's such a great scene. That's why when people criticize Gene's writing, I mean, Gene may have been burnt out and he may have gone to the uh, uh, the mattresses for some bad ideas like, sorry, guys, the Omega Glory. But um, he uh, uh, he could, when he was on top of his game, and I, I mean, you see this in Have Gun Will Travel. You see it with the lieutenant. He was a great writer. Yeah. Okay. That brings us to number 32. And I've given uh, uh, XO6 a lot of guff on this show, but I, I, I owe them an apology because not only did I get the Captain Kirk, Admiral Kirk, 
uh, action figure, but uh, they just took pre-orders for this next character, and it looks fantastic. Ashley, tell us who it is. Well, speaking of somebody who shows up with booze and talks to you, uh, number 32 is our favorite bartender. Now, you may be thinking, oh, is he going to say? He's not going to say. Our favorite bartender is Quark from Deep Space Nine. Might I trouble you for a glass of canard? Help yourself. It's on the house. Well, how uncharacteristically generous of you. I'm in an uncharacteristic mood. Besides, I got 80 cases of this stuff sitting in my stockroom. And the way things are going, I'll never unload another bottle, unless it's to you. How thoughtless of me not to consider the effects the destruction of my home world would have on your business. These must be trying times for you. Be brave. I should have listened to my cousin, Gala. He said to me, Quark, I got one word for you. Weapons. No one ever went broke selling weapons. But did I take his advice? No. And why not? Because I'm a people person. I like interacting with my customers like you and I are doing right now. Talking to each other, getting to know one another. I can see the attraction for you. But when you're dealing in weapons, buyers aren't interested in casual conversation. They just want their merchandise, no questions asked. So impersonal. Your charms would be wasted. Exactly. Richard Benjamin? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> He's got like the twins and they're hot. It's crazy. Um, Quark is the first Ferengi regular on uh, on Star Trek. Although Armin Shimmerman, who plays Quark, actually was one of the played one of the very first speaking Ferengi um, in uh, the first season of uh, Star Trek: one The of Next the ones Generation. With the enormous cod pieces. Yes, and the long whips. The long energy, which is the most impractical goddamn weapon in the history of anything. But who's counting? Um, what's, there's so many things about Quark that I just find entertaining. First of all, he has a very specific relationship with everybody. He is not generically the Ferengi who is sitting down in his bar and he's greedy and that's it and you're done. Um, his relationship with Odo is incredibly contentious. They're constantly sparring. Uh, it has been likened to the relationship between Spock and McCoy in some ways. Obviously, there's a different agenda, but the dynamic is very similar. It's a very different point of view on law and order and justice and our place in society and, you know, what we, what we owe society and what society owes us. Um, and, you know, the, when you have Armin Shimmerman and Renee Abergenois just going, at each other like that. It is simply fantastic. Um, he has a, a great relationship with Jedzia Dax. You know, Jedzia Dax is literally an old soul. And so they speak to each other in a, in a very different way. Um, the way that Quark treats Cisco is very different. Uh, the, there's a, there's a level of respect there, but at the same time, you know, there's a, there's a bit of uh, the wolf and the sheepdog. Uh, like you can tell Quark is constantly, he's trying to get away with stuff. Um, but he doesn't think that Cisco is an idiot. And Quark also has limits on how far he is, uh, how far he's willing to go. He's not amoral. He doesn't not care about the people around him. Um, in fact, it's, it's quite the opposite. He does. And, and what's interesting about his portrayal is that, um, the show goes a long way. Um, to uh, to kind of unpack how Quark's attitudes toward a lot of things are armor. 
against getting hurt. And what's terrific about Armin Shimmerman is that he he plays all of that. And it's not it's not dishonest. I mean, he court honestly believes the philosophy that he espouses, but very often he hides behind it. And that to me is just really interesting characterization. Um, Cork has been on uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, he has been on uh, Voyager. He was in Caretaker. Uh, and I believe that he just did a spot on uh, on Lower Decks as a voice. So Cork has kind of kind of been all over the place. Um, notable things about Cork are he is one of the few characters at the end of Deep Space Nine who is still there. Uh, number one. And he also has, for my money, one of the best speeches in uh, in Star Trek. And it was a speech that was basically written to fill time um, in the uh, season four opener, The Way of the Warrior, uh, where he is likening the Federation to root beer. And the, the root beer speech, you know, you just go out, like, find it on YouTube, watch it. It's terrific. Um, Armin delivers it perfectly. Uh, and it's with it's Garrick. Just, it is, yeah, you're right. It, it's and with it's, Garrick. It's, it's, it's one of the great Deep Space Nine moments of all. And isn't it amazing that it was just something that they wrote because they needed to fill in the time? I mean, it's just, but it's perfect. Um, it just goes to show that sometimes the best and cheapest special effect are two great actors with great writing in the middle of the scene. Well, to point out the fact that you've got these two actors that are caked with prosthetics, mm -hmm. and and yet they can, sitting across from one another at a bar, they can have a conversation, and you see the characters. You're not seeing men in makeup. You're seeing Quark, and you're seeing Garrick having this conversation about the disposition of the Federation, and it, you're completely immersed in it. And I think, you know, the, what's, what I find interesting about Quark and the Ferengi was they were, they were an alien race that was botched from the very beginning. I mean, they, the Yankee traders of space, they just came off as being one step away from the Packlids. They were, they were really not well. And yet they kept trying to bring them back and make them, make, make them formidable in the first season and the stargazer and the, the, the battle and all that. And it didn't really work. And it wasn't until Deep Space Nine that the Ferengi really were fleshed out because right. not only, you know, Quark has his brother, he's got Rom and, and you've got Nog and, and you saw how Quark, in a way, I mean, he wasn't suave like Humphrey Bogart, but Quark's bar was Cafe American. You know, that's, that's what it was. And, and Quark could be many things to many different episodes. And I thought that they really, because of Shimmerman's performance, they turned him into a, a, and he was he originated the Ferengi, and to see um, to see that character become as wildly uh, used as he was was I think a great thing and a real testament to Shimmerman's performance. Yeah, so true, and and I'm glad you really shine a light on Armin because um, you know it was amazing because Armin was doing his role as Principal Snyder and Buffy at the same time he was doing Quark. In um and the you know in Deep Space Nine and they're such different characters and he's great in both and uh, what he's able to do under those prosthetics is amazing particularly because you say this was a failed race this was a failed concept there was nothing about the Ferengi that was interesting um and somehow 
you know, Armin brought this entire species to life and that gave Max Gredenchik something to play as Rom and Aaron Eisenberg as Nog. And then you had all these other people like, you know, Wallace Shawn as the Grand Nagus, which was hit or miss. But when it hit, it was funny. And then you had uh, also later on, um, uh, uh, you know, their mother, you know, I forget the character's name, the mother. And Andrea Thomas. Uh, well, oh, they, Andrea, they recast. Uh, Martin, right. Andrea Martin, Andrea Martin. Um, right. I think, and I think they had to recast it once. But um, Mookie, Mookie. So um, just, just, uh, just great, uh, you know. And then you even had uh, Jeff Combs showing up as Brunt. So uh, uh, really great because they work much better as comic foils than they do as a villain, like the Klingons, or the Romulans, and you know, Maurice Hurley wrote them in Last Outpost as you know our new adversary. And they were anything but. And you're right. What's so interesting him is the guy who has a heart who doesn't want anybody to know. Right. And, right. Um, so in that sense, he is Rick Blaine, Rob. You're right. It's great. Great character. And going to be a great action figure. I broke <laughs> yes, my, he is. I broke my no, TS, my no TOS rule. I ordered Quark 2 to go with my Shran. <laughs> so there you go. Okay. Well, number 31, uh, Rob, you're in my way. Which is really unfortunate. So well, tell us, one of I think the great, one of the great additions to uh, TNG. Unfortunately, she only appeared once, or actually twice, in Star Trek: The Next Generation. Was Shelby Elizabeth Shelby? Decade Battlebridge. Halt, Commander. You and I need to have a conversation. You never ordered me not to discuss this with the captain. You disagree with me, fine. You need to take it to the captain, fine. Through me. You do an end run around me again. I'll snap you back so hard you'll think you're a first-year cadet again. May I speak frankly, sir? By all means. You're in my way. Really? How terrible for you. All you know how to do is play it safe. I suppose that's why someone like you sits in the shadow of a great man for as long as you have, passing up one command after another. Proceed to deck eight. When it comes to this ship and this crew, you're damned right I play it safe. If you can't make the big decisions, Commander, I suggest you make room for someone who can. Um, Elizabeth Dennehy. A uh, pardon me. Elizabeth Elizabeth, did I say Elizabeth Shelby? You did. Elizabeth Dennehy, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Dennehy as Shelby, and you know Roddenberry and his edict of there was no, there was no um, conflict between Starfleet there officers. No what was really well, what was really interesting was they found a way to put Riker not only into conflict uh, with a character, but conflict with a character that. You, we, the audience might have wanted to dislike, but through her own, you had to admire her because she was a character that was incredibly competent. She knew what she was doing. She was uh, on her game. She busted her ass. And frankly, um, it was one of those times like when Riker came came uh, up against Edward Jellicoe that uh, Riker was was wrong, you know, and, and Shelby showed the possibility of what might happen if... Riker was replaced as first officer on the Enterprise. And of course, she was instrumental after Picard was taken and and turned into Locutus. And Elizabeth Dennehy's performance, I thought, was terrific. And she 
She recently appeared on Lower Decks. They certainly like those bringing back those characters. But um, she was an, an incredible powerhouse of a character. And the fact that she was part of the advanced, the Federation advanced team that knew all about the Borg and and well, as much as they the Federation knew at the time, um, she was just a, a fantastic character. And she only appeared in Best of Both Worlds one and two up until recently. And uh, she was just a fantastic character. And I loved everything about this character, aside from perhaps the hairstyle they gave her, which the actress herself will tell you was one of the worst hairstyles she's ever had to wear in her entire life. It's still but regulation. Other, other than that, um, <laughs> other than that, she she's an incredible character. And I'll tell you something else. I mean, it, it also showed uh, you had a very strong female character who... Her her femininity was not sacrificed for her competency or the fact that she had to come into quote unquote man's world, right. and uh, she was just a great character that you actually believed would have earned a place as first officer on the Enterprise. And you know the thing that I, I appreciate most about her as a character, um, both in terms of how Elizabeth Dennehy played her, how she was written into the show, how she integrated with Riker is that um, it It wasn't about Commander Shelby coming aboard to show us that Riker was useless and not doing his job. Commander Shelby came aboard to show Riker that he needed to be more, that he needed to live up to his potential, that it was mm. one thing you know, for Picard to have a, a scene with him and say, why do you keep turning down the big chair? Uh, it was another thing entirely for Shelby to contend with him to push him, right? Mm-hmm. Like I keep thinking about that scene in the turbo lift, you know, where she has gone around it and he just, you know, he basically tells her like, you know, if you do anything like that, like I will snap you back so hard, you'll think you're a first year cadet again. And you're like, you go Riker, except she's right. And you right. know, she's right. And that's why you're pissed off. You're in and way. again, to the show's credit, Riker realizes that. Right. And he becomes a, a, a better person, a, a better leader, a better yeah. officer because of her. And neither one of those characters have to sacrifice anything um, to to get him there or to get her there. I, I, I mean, I I just I love Shelby. It, it, it I, I could have watched the Riker and Shelby show honestly forever. Mm-hmm. Well, oh, yeah. the sad thing about Next Generation being on the '90s and not now is that now Shelby would have stayed with the ship. And Riker would have gone to another ship and we would have followed him for a couple other episodes and seen him. And then eventually he would have come back, but we would have had Shelby, you know, a lot longer. And, it, you know, it's such a shame that we didn't get to spend more time with her and that they never brought her back, yeah. which is incredible given how popular that character was that she never came back, um, you know, uh, uh, during the run of the original Next Generation series that she never came back. So, um and uh, she was just a spitfire, and she's a great character. You know, she brought. It, well, we'll talk. I'm sure talk about another character that did the same thing for the series. It was like uh, adrenaline, Jim. It was like you know <laughs> that scene in Pulp Fiction with the hypodermic needle into the chest. Suddenly, Shelby just brings the show to life. And occasionally, you know, next generation would have those moments where someone would just walk in and steal the show, and be great, and then they'd be gone. Yeah, and then they're gone. So uh, anyway, and that was Shelby. Yeah, she was uh, she was a great character all the way around. And you know, it's interesting that when they would bring in these memorable memorable characters, they were they were Starfleet officers that were sort of uber. We had the crazy 
Starfleet officers in the original series, but when they would bring in Starfleet officers that were super competent, they were necess- they might not have been everyone's cup of tea, but they were competent, they were hard, and they were they- better. Yeah, and, they were. And, yeah, and they were better. Yeah. And it was tough. It was tough. The audience had to come to grips with the fact that Huh, but I, you know, I think for the most part, the audience did recognize these characters were better, and that's why they weren't totally despised. Right. And I love it when, like, when Jellico says, "Well, maybe a little better," you know, and he hands the Enterprise back to Picard at the end of <laughs> at the end of uh, Chain of Command two. But the 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 Shelby character was, uh, and you you do see over the course of this whole operation that that Riker and her have come to a place where they do have mutual respect for one another. Yes. And they do, they, they and, and that's what, that's what adults do. Right. You can come from different places, but you can get the job done, work together and develop a respect and understanding of one another. And I think that's one of the great, the great things about the two part that she was in. Well, I think when she sees that he's willing to kill Captain Picard by firing the, the weapon at the end of one, that's what sort of seals it. It's yeah. like, you know, that's, and that's, that's a huge sign of growth for him that yeah. he's willing to sacrifice Picard, the good of the Benny, you know, that she realizes, okay, he does have what it takes because they work together a lot better in part two than they did in, in part one. And it's, it's, it's yeah. that's what it takes to make him a great commander that he's willing to kill his captain, but it kind of is. So, okay. Well, that brings us to number 30 and Ashley Edward Miller, will it be the will of the prophets? We'll find out. So um, speaking of, boy, I keep sort of like following one sort of character with another, uh, you know, strong women leaders. Um, this one is maybe not quite so nice as uh, as Commander Shelby, but uh, she is played by the great Louise Fletcher. You might remember as Nurse Ratchet. Uh, Kai Wynn. So, you're refusing my request for aid. I suppose I am. If Bajor cannot depend on the Federation, we'll withdraw our application for membership. That would be an unfortunate overreaction on your part. If I may say so, your entire response to this crisis has been an overreaction. By using the militia against your own people, you're risking civil war over a couple of soil reclamators. I'm afraid you can't see what's really going on here. This isn't about soil reclamators. This is about the future of our society. When someone like Shakar can defy the law and escape punishment, we risk descending into anarchy and chaos. This is a test. A test by the prophets. They want to see if I'm worthy of the role they've given me as first minister and Kai. I will not fail them. I will stop Shakar by any means necessary. Um, Kai Wynn is on Deep Space Nine. Um, she, at the end of the first season, uh, becomes, you know, the, uh, the the leader, basically, of the, of the Bajoran faith. And a thorn in Cisco's side. Um, you know, Kai Wynn was, although, you know, she was a, she was a, a believer in the, in the prophets. And, you know, she had the sort of the, the, the ear of like the, of the faithful. And like the problem with her was she kind of hated Cisco. 
she didn't trust him as emissary. She didn't really believe in him as emissary. She she treated him with all of the outward respect that he was due. But underneath that, and this is what's so great about Louise Fletcher, underneath that was not just a contempt, but a resentment. Um, it, later in the series, Kai Wen comes to a moment when she essentially repudiates her faith in the prophets and she follows the Pawraiths. She she basically takes the opposite road. But what's great about that moment and what's great about her development is there's just this terrific revelation where Kai Wen is talking about um, her experience in the in the temple and how you know she spent her entire life waiting for the prophets to speak to her, waiting to, to really feel them inside of her and understand that in the context of Deep, Deep Space Nine, you can interact with the prophets. Now you have to go into the wormhole or maybe you have to like, you know, get, you see one of the orbs and all that other stuff. But they are like, they are entities that are tangible, that manifest in reality in a way that can be observed. And she talks about seeing all of these people who, you know, they they really did the touch their God and their God moved through them and she didn't feel a thing. They never spoke to her and that quiet, you know, hurt, that resentment, um, that anger, all of that suddenly contextualized her relationship with Cisco and it made her decisions make so much sense. Um, you know, it's, it is one thing to have your faith tested, you know, when, when God is ineffable, when you, when you cannot touch him, except, you know, through, you know, your, your mind, like through your heart. Um, but when you have a God that you could speak with, that you could literally open a box or travel into a wormhole and God won't talk to you. What is that like? What does that mean? And I just find the the writing behind that to be inc- just just terrific and fascinating. Uh, Louise Fletcher so perfectly cast uh, in that role, and Kai Wen as a character bringing all of that together. Just one in just a slugger's row of awesome characters on Deep Space Nine. Yeah, Louise Fletcher passed away recently, and it was uh, sad. But she's such a wonderful actress. Where's her action figure? Yeah. That's why I uh, like that, that was a great, by the way, that was a great <laughs> summation, Ashley. I, I got to hand it to you for that one. That was uh, well done. Thank you. I mean, I will say this. I, too, loved her, her character, and I, I thought you summed up wonderfully well why she was an important character. I, I do think that if Deep Space Nine had any weakness uh, at all, it's what they ended up doing to her toward the end of the show. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And, and I, 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 I've, I've always found it sort of inexplicable. That you know led down the primrose path by the Pawraiths and 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 the humanized or Bajoranized Ducat, you know the altered Ducat. All all of that seemed a little sort of beneath her, and mm-hmm. and I I wish that they had figured out like and leaned into what you had just said. She was a woman who everyone else got to talk to these gods, but her. Cisco was communing with them. You know, the they went back in time to get, and they, you know, there was always somebody that seemed to, and even the paw raids were second rate prophets. And in a way, I, 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 I almost wish that rather than go down the route that they went down, 
they might have had Louise Fletcher actually get her moment in the sun and and then then she would lose her faith. Right. You know, or, or, or when she rather than just be corrupted by villains that she actually did get her wish and it wasn't what she wanted or expected right. it to be. And uh, that was the only thing that really bothered me about the end of Deep Space Nine. I agree. Yeah. Like they kind of got to it through um, through a plot move that was that was justified by the things we understood about the character, but the but the moves that that got her there were external, and it's it's a it's a rare thing on that show. No, it's fascinating what you said. You know, she's not Abraham, she's not Moses because God is not talking to her, right? You know, and it's like she's just going on quote unquote faith of which is not, she doesn't have an abundance, right? Because she really just cares about power. She's like an evangelist in a sense. You know, yes. she just cares about hoarding power. And, and, um, you know, but the thing is, she's so great in the role, you know, and, and, and I think you also pinpointed the weakness. Seventh season. You know, for a show that was firing all cylinders, three, four, five, six, just killing it. Seven is a mess. And it's mostly because of the whole Paw Ray thing, you know, and what they did with Ducat because it, uh, Mark Alemo didn't want to be a makeup anymore. And, and, you know, and the fact that the, the finale is complicated why, with all this Cisco Ducat Paw Ray nonsense, you know, possession, you know, is fine for one episode when you do, um, power play, right? It's mm-hmm. a it's a staple of of the genre, but when you stretch it out to 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 be a major plot point, it just it just brings the house of cards down. Yeah, and uh, it's really unfortunate because the show was always smarter than that. Um, but um, but they were tired and they were doing twenty six episodes a season, so you can't begrudge them that. But but you know it is what it is. But she's so good, yeah, so good in this role, and it, you know introduced in. Um, uh, and she was such a great foil for Cisco, you know, and, and normally you think, okay, there's a Klingon or, you know, obviously he had Dukat, you know, as a, a foil. And for a while he had the Klingons as foils, Duras, but, but she was maybe the biggest foil of all and the scariest, you know. And yeah, the, I mean, but Mark, that's how the, their, the, the show should have ended with their relationship rather than in the fire caves with I, I mean, it should have been about belief and and maybe the, the, the prophets, they could have told her it wasn't in your, you were never in the cards, no matter what. And that, uh, Well, that's a different episode in the cards. Yeah. <laughs> and a great episode. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's, that's, it's a, it's a great point and a, and a great character, which brings us to uh, number 29, General P.F. Chang. No, he is, that's uh, not his name. Oh, sorry. General Chang. Tickle us, do we not laugh? Prick us, do we not bleed? Wrong us. Shall we not revenge? Our revels now are ended, Kirk. Cry havoc! And let's slip the dogs of war! I am constant as the northern star. I'd give real money if he'd shut up. To be... Whose uh, look was styled on the uh, great Israeli general um, Moshe Dayan, um, and uh, Christopher Plummer just rips this role. It's tour de force. Uh, I know Darren has his issues with the movie, and that's quite understandable. He articulated them extremely well here on the show. But uh, General Chang, you know, is not a joke like Kruge in Star Trek Three. He is. Scary, and he is tough, 
and he knows Shakespeare in the original Klingon, which is yeah, right. Yes. Talk, uh, a talk, lot talk, of it to no uh, one who yells Shakespeare is tough. <laughs> Tell that to Kenneth. Are you Bronner. kidding? Unleash the dogs of war. You know when he's spinning around and the and the ICU Kirk, you're as constant as the Northern Star. I give real money if he'd shut up. Right. Okay, so you know what? Here's the thing. Sorry, Ashley, but here's yeah. the thing. It, you know, he. It, it, it's such a great story that Nick Meyer tells about why Christopher Plummer is in this movie. That he used to listen to records of him performing Shakespeare, and he said, "Well, if I put him in the movie, I can have him perform Shakespeare for me all day long." I mean, you know? it's as simple as that. And but you know, I know we get on the case of there's too much Shakespeare in the movie and there's too much quotes and stuff. But he's great. He is 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 you know this the verbal sparring in the dinner scene is it's not as good as Space Seed, but it, 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 it's it's a strong second in terms of uh, you know the sparring going on between Kirk and Spock. We need and breathing Adam. room. And Earth, Hitler, 1938. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it, it, it's and, and Christopher Plummer is so great and he doesn't condescend to the role. He just, you know, eats, eats into it ferociously and he has a great look. And uh, um, I, 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 I'm a big fan of his character, as I know most of you are. The only thing I, I see dinner. when I see that dinner uh, scene is uh, seeing all the money that Shatner was making by eating the prop food. <laughs> I was wondering where the Kung Pao chicken and the lettuce cups were, but then I realized it wasn't P.F. Chang's, it was General yes. Chang. Yeah, yeah the, uh, they're eating the, the salt and pepper gah. Um, <laughs> I, no, I, I think I think Chang is awesome. Uh, I, I think he is one of the, the few black hats in the, uh, in the Star Trek films that was actually effective as a black hat, other than the obvious, which is Khan. Um, and a, a lot of that is due to Christopher Palmer's performance. I mean, he's definitely got layers. You can tell that he has plans within plans. He's not a blustering Klingon. Um, and I, I kind of dig, like, when he pops off with the Shakespeare. Is it a little too much? Maybe. But can you ever have too much Shakespeare? Uh, fun definitely. fact for the kids out there, uh, and this is sort of well-known, but in the, in the original Klingon, as uh, as as created by Mark Okron, um, there is no infinitive to be. Right. So it is literally impossible to say to be or not to be. So I, I, they, I, I don't remember exactly like what the what the translation translates to. Talk talk hey. But it definitely translates to something. But there's something fascinating to me about that moment. Um, and I just I like that there is an actor. Um, who is stepping up to, to Shatner, um, who like that moment when they meet in the transporter room is looking at him like, I'm just not impressed with you, mm -hmm. but not like in a just sort of a schmarmy well, way. It's just, it's I, just, I'm not afraid of you. I enjoy it from the historical fact that Shatner was Chris Plummer's understudy yeah. uh, in Canada. Yeah. Um, and that adds a whole other layer of interest for me um, because uh, here they are years later uh, hacking it out uh, in, at a dinner table and it's very enjoyable for me that way. P.S. He also quotes Adlai Stevenson. <laughs> um, oh, wait uh, for the translation. Answer me now. The, um, which I love that line. Um, one of the things I, I regret about Star Trek Six that I wish they had, I, I wish there was a little bit more of the conspirators perhaps meeting. Yeah. And, and I love the idea that General Chang 
is so overjoyed because he thinks he's going to continue the hostilities between the Klingon Empire and the Federation. He's literally fighting for the opportunity to make to war fighting. more, yes. you know, and, and I've always loved that. I'm like, he's because he, he, he's gleefully thinking that he's succeeding. You know, that his conspiracy, his conspiracy to keep this conflict going is working. He's you know, he's lately got, defiled that piece. I mean, it, it, uh, he's, you've got yeah, Federation, Klingon, Romulan operatives working on this thing from all different angles. And, and he's on the front lines of it, just having a good old time. Boy, the way and you described that, that's a hell of a movie. Yeah, unfortunately, none of that was on screen, but it's so cool. Like no. the Romulans and the Klingons and everybody. And he's foiled by a little patch of Velcro on Kirk's uh, shoulder placed yeah. there by Spock. I know. Oh, well, God. What can that, you do? Even then, you would think like the the brilliant patch of brilliant patch. It's like, why couldn't he give him like an injection, a nanite thing or something? Why isn't anything? it built into the uniform? I, yeah, yeah, right, exactly. We have GPS now. I carry this uncomfortable <laughs> hunk of metal in my ass <laughs> for three years, and hours would seem like days. This By the book. Viridian patch is your birthright. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I, I think that's... Let's move on to 28 and give uh, Darren Beck his illusion of beauty and more. Well, I, I'll take it. And uh, uh, the original pilot for Star Trek uh, in its original form is a beautiful episode. Mostly because it has something to say. And what it has to say is that endless TV watching and, and separation from uh, life is dangerous. And the Telosians, who is my character, um, the Telosians have been crippled by this. We had not believed this possible. The customs and history of your race show a unique hatred of captivity. Even when it's pleasant and benevolent, you prefer death. This makes you too violent and dangerous a species for our needs. He means that they can't use you. You're free to go back to the ship. And that's it. No apologies. You captured one of us, threatened all of us. Your unsuitability has condemned the Telosian race to eventual death. Is this not sufficient? No other specimen has shown your adaptability. You were our last hope. They, they are a race that is physically incapable of continuing their lives un, uh, unassisted. And they have uh, become an entire race of drugged out invalids, basically. And they are addicted to basically television uh, in, in the parlance of the day. Um, they have developed this power of illusion uh, so, that, uh, so that they can uh, live the life that they think they should have. And they use their, um, their captives to uh, entertain themselves. And it's, it's a kind of a shocking statement from uh, the producers of this 
that uh, basically being uh, involved in television so deeply that you can't do anything else uh, is uh, detrimental to the society. And it's so interesting that these little, it, it was a brilliant bit of casting, uh, basically casting, uh, you know, frail little women to play these uh, strange alien beings, you know, the, the little women inside the beings and, and the, the booming voice of, uh, of Malachi Throne, uh, pitched higher, of course. Um, but to state that basically uh, this race was addicted to television and uh, was suffering because of it. They couldn't, they couldn't fix the machines. They couldn't uh, live above ground. Uh, and it's, uh, it, it's really a scathing uh, uh, indictment of addiction to entertainments. And not podcasts. I, I, we want to point out, not podcasts. Not podcasts, okay. yes. Uh, <laughs> but uh, to, to be able to say this so subtly that no one got it. Uh, at, at the at the studio is really fascinating, and uh, it's it's something that I think that uh, uh, Discovery completely missed uh, when we returned to uh, Talos Four, um, and uh, that didn't make any sense. But that's okay because it makes complete sense in the Cage and of course the wraparound series uh, episodes, the Menagerie. Um, but the Talosians are incredibly interesting because again. They aren't evil. They are just antagonists. They don't think that they are doing any harm. And it's only through Pike's continued uh, uh, poking the bear. And resistance. Uh, that, and his resistance that convinces them that, well, you, you don't want to be uh, caged at all. You, you, think it's, uh, you think it's horrible even when it's pleasant. That was um, the original title, Caged Heat. That's right. <laughs> on a on a merry-go-round, um, but it's it's so great and it's such a subtle uh, sort of story point that was basically uh, damning television viewers. And I think it's uh, awesome. And the Talosians were really creepy. And you know, even though later on we'd call them the buttheads, um, they're they're oh, really I, I fascinating. Call them the, the Vians. No, the Vians are different. How dare you? But they, they were one of the great depictions of aliens on Absolutely. TV. Absolutely. And and the way that you know they're pulsing veins and yeah they were they were both scary but you know I have to say as a little kid when Meg Wiley who plays right. the lead Talosian when she finally you see fear in her and and she's like well wait a minute why do, what's why don't you like this come yeah. on what's wrong with you like I don't under and she actually has fear in her eyes that yeah. that she, that Pike's gonna what wring her neck and kill her and it's. It's truly, I remember as a little kid thinking, that's sad. Yeah. Like, I felt terrible <laughs> that she was, I mean, I love I love Pike, and I, I didn't want to see anything happen to him. But as a little kid, I'm like, but wait. But it's I'm a dead. great Star Trek moment. Oh, it's a great Star Trek moment. Yes, it is. What's amazing about the Talosians, I look, I know Outer Limits was doing Monsters, uh, Monster of the Week and doing them fairly well. Um, but it is a true testament. I, I don't know how much... Adjustment had to do with it because he was only, I think, the AD on the cage. Um, yeah. You know, he didn't have, he wasn't the associate producer yet. Um, so for Roddenberry to have this, how do we make them alien? Well, first of all, the makeup is extraordinary, extraordinary. Yeah. Um, I had that 1976 calendar with them and the three of them on the cover. Sure. And it was, 
I thought, oh man, that was the best picture. And um, and uh, and then um, they uh, to to have the inspiration to say, okay, we're gonna have um, the, these characters played by women, but give them a male voice because that's gonna make them strange, yeah. you know. Um, my God, in 1965, this was extraordinary. It was extraordinary. Those are some of the coolest aliens ever on television. It's not bumpy foreheads. It's not weird crinkly noses. It's bumpy backhead. That's right. It's completely alien. Yeah. And um and 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 what they do, and yes, as you mentioned, it's influenced by Forbidden Planet, but they're so different from the Krell, you know, obviously. Um that it, it's it's great. I mean, of all the aliens, maybe other than the Horda that Star Trek ever did. You know, uh, or Loskine, but they Loskine doesn't really have to act. Um, the Telosians are Trek's greatest aliens for sure, by far. Definitely agreed. Agreed. And speaking of agreeing, Robert Meyer Burnett, tell us. Uh, oh no, I was going to say it's not agreeing; it's green. Uh, number twenty-seven. <laughs> well, <laughs> well I, I I think there is an argument to be made that yes, everyone knows Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. But even in circles outside of fandom and outside of a lot of, uh, a lot of, well, any circles that are aware of entertainment, that this character, probably more than any other, has penetrated the cultural zeitgeist. And he, he is a character that is known and loved. It's Montgomery Scott. Any matter that comes in contact with antimatter triggers the explosion. And I'm not even sure a man can live in a crawlway in the energy stream of the magnetic field that bottles up the antimatter. I shall try. You'll be killed, man. Unless a solution is found quickly, that fate awaits all of us. Aye. You're right. What have we got to lose? But I'll do it, Mr. Spock. I know every millimeter of that system. I'll do whatever has to be done. Very well, Mr. Scott. You spoke of the feel of the ship being wrong. Aye. It was an emotional statement. I don't expect you to understand it. I note it, Mr. Scott, without necessarily understanding it. I propose to run an analysis through the ship's computers comparing the present condition of the Enterprise with her ideal condition. Mr. Spock, we don't have time for that. We have 12 minutes and 27 seconds. I suggest you do whatever you can in the service crawlway while I make the computer study. Uh, played by the great, great James Doohan. I mean, everyone knows, you know, if I need more power, Captain. You know, everyone can say that. And you know what you know what people are talking about. And I think one of the great things about the character of Montgomery Scott is that, in a way, the whole ethos of Star Trek is represented in this character. Because, first of all, he's very proud of who he is. He, he's proud of his humanity. His, he's proud of his Scottish heritage. He's proud that he's a drinker. But he's also a brilliant, brilliant mind that is keeping all of this technology, whether it's computer technology, whether it's the, the warp technology that, that transcends time and space that keeps the Enterprise going, or whatever it needs, whatever needs to be done, this man, it begins and ends with him to the point of, even in his spare time, he's always educating himself uh, as to know what what is the latest uh, technology across the universe that I need to know about. 
Unless it's and, working a mouse. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, but to be fair, okay, he, he, uh, what can I, he, he never, he never saw him before. But I mean, he's, he's a character that we've seen him in command of the enterprise in tense mm-hmm. situations. He is a tactician. He understands what to do. He's cool under fire. Um, and he is always shown as being nothing but competent. And he's always great at his job. And he's always there to back up whatever the captain needs him to do. And yet he's not uh, against having a good time. And even if he needs to uh, drink an alien under the table in order to save the ship or get one over on him, he'll do that too. And and he's a man that can, uh, he'll get things done for you. And it's it's a character that, I always loved in uh, in Star Trek, and I thought Dewan's performance was so much fun, and and it was always so warm, and uh, he you always knew that in his performance he was kind of smiling on the inside. He was always yeah. ready to crack a crack a smile, even though he didn't, you know, he didn't all the time. But uh, whenever he said "I," you know, mm-hmm. that but you looks... know, Rob. Sorry, Go ahead. I, I, th- I think Star Trek is the tale of two Scotties. I think. The Scotty in the original series is a phenomenal character. I think he has a gravitas. I think I believe him when he's command of the starship. I think that he is a loyal officer. He's funny. He's con- I mean, I see the 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 J- Jimmy Dewan who landed on Normandy, who was a war hero in the original Star Trek. Mm-hmm. In the movies, I see a parody of Scotty. Yeah. I see a goofball. I see the guy who, when he came to speak at my alma mater when I was in college, and um, I, I was so excited Jimmy Dewan was there, and I went up to, to Dewan, and, and I said to him, uh, I said, oh, Mr. Dewan, is there anything I could do for you, anything I can get you? Welcome. Uh, he goes, yeah, get me a drink, kid. <laughs> <laughs> and, so he was, uh, Scotty. So, but you know, this is the guy who's had you know hits the the beam and 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 Star Trek Five and says, "I know the ship like the back of my pound," you know, and the, the you know even in Star Trek Two, you know, during the death of Spock, you know, it's 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 he's dead already, you know. I mean, just it's just like uh, it's it's like a totally different character. I mean, um, as opposed to the 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 Scotty we saw, you know, because he was always such a great supporting character in in the series, particularly when they left him in command. You know, Taste of Armageddon. Um, you know, it wasn't you know, and and there's that wonderful scene, obviously in Tribbles, and I'm not even talking about the bar scene where he goes toe to toe with the Klingon. I'm talking about the dressing down scene. Oh in, yeah, uh, oh, in the transporter great. room, yeah, where he has to admit that he's the one who started the fight with the Klingons. I mean, it's such a wonderful character. I I don't disagree with you at all. I just, I mean, unfortunately, uh, I don't think the Star Trek film series ever lived up to what it could have been. And and Scotty was a character that, for whatever inexplicable reason, uh, he was turned into sort of this foil. I think that because, again, just like Chekhov in the J.J. Abrams movies, Chekhov through pop culture became a parody of the character became a parody yep. of itself through the osmosis of people absorbing it through th- not even watching the show and and Scotty by the time even in the movies i mean it was early on enough that you know beam me up scotty and all that it it just became it was larger di- than life lar- and it was yeah. but it was difficult to accept him as a as a as a competent character because 
most people look the biggest problem that Star Trek ever had and it it it, it is reflected since the shows in in 2017 is that the pop culture memory of what Star Trek is does not reflect what it the original series actually is. Right. And when you go back, the original series at its best was a very serious, very thoughtful show that had very well-written, well-drawn characters that were being put through these allegorical stories that were fascinating. Um, and, and now everyone looks back to the original series, whether they watch it or not, it's kind of a goof. No, see, I disagree, Rob. I, I, and this is why I think you're making a very interesting point. I think the majority of the younger audience that knows Star Trek knows the original series from the movies. They don't know, yeah, uh, yeah. or have well, maybe they've seen the original once. Doesn't resonate for them. They don't know it, but they know the movies. You know, well, and I see that but, even on this podcast. Whenever we cover the movies, it's through the roof. I mean, our, our numbers are through the roof when we do the movies. There so you goodwill. say that we should be paying more attention to the movies? <laughs> and there is such goodwill towards the movies. And even, you know, some people we know who, who, who've been on this podcast who came to Star Trek through Star Trek 2, through Star Trek 3. Right. They didn't but, come through the series. point, I think, remains, and I think it's a good one, that by the time you get to the movies, I think – those actors, and to a certain extent, what was happening in the writing is they were they were playing an interpretation of the character based on how pop culture. No, no, we um, agree had, about had that. Portrayed them. We you know, agree. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't see the movies as being other than Star Trek: The Motion Picture, which I think is the closest to the original series. I mean, I've been saying this for forty years, forty three years. I mean, tomorrow is our big anniversary. Um, and it, it's just this, we're recording this on December 6th. But I, I just think that it, it's unfortunate because the Star Trek film franchise could have been a series of movies along the lines of, say, the Mission Impossible, the, the Chris McQuarrie Mission Impossible movies. Yeah. Where you could have gone back to that. I'm, the motion picture tried to do it. Star Trek Two. if Star Trek Two. Even Star Trek II goes a little too far off the rails, even though it's a great movie and everything. But it could have been a great movie without even being Star Trek because it's Moby Dick in space. You could have done that film and and wrapped a, a different franchise into it and it still would have worked. Whereas um, I, I, I really think that the Star, Star Trek as we know it ended with the motion picture, and then a new Star Trek emerged. A Star Trek is born with James Star Mason and Judy well, I mean, I, In a way, it's, 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 <laughs> it's part of the legacy of the franchise, how it's interesting how there are different phases of Star Trek. The problem, I think, is that, unfortunately, the classic, the six classic movies, they're, they're not as good as they could have been as a whole. So, I don't know. It, to and a so Montgomery extent, Scott like, suffered. You know, this this sort of reflects in a way what you're talking about. Is that I just ever since we started thinking uh, talking about about Scotty, I was thinking about the the relationship between the cast, what is portrayed, what is the character, and how those things changed over time. And the thing that that haunts me, you know, it's like I've, I've you know met to a certain one degree or another, you know, various members of the of the cast. We all have, obviously. Um, and, uh, I met, uh, Jimmy Dewan three times 
Uh, the first time I was 15 years old, it was a convention in uh, in Northern Virginia. There was a there was a you know a, a Star Trek imitation contest. So I did my impression of Scotty, and because Jimmy Doohan was the guest of honor, I got to go backstage and, and meet Jimmy Doohan, and that was fun. Uh, the second time I met him, he came to speak at my alma mater. He came to William and Mary and he gave a speech. He did a whole thing. And because I was on the student council and all that other shit, like I got to take him to dinner. So we went to dinner. Very smart man. His whole talk, you know, to my school was really most of it was about a what happened to him, uh, in World War II, uh, and on D Day and B was about nuclear power and energy and all this other stuff and sitting down with him and talking to him about all of that at dinner. That's what he wanted to talk about. Very smart man. Um, you believe that he was Scotty, that he was the, the engineer. And of course, you know, obviously he's like, get me a drink kid. Yep. That was the guy. Third time I met him it was difficult, but telling, uh, it was a convention in, I don't know why the hell I was there, but, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And, um, Jimmy was was one of the, uh, the 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 guests of honor, and I remember I was sitting back in the green room, and they brought him in, and he was there with his entourage. He was this was two thousand one, something like that. And at this point, uh, you know, he was not quite himself mm-hmm. anymore. Let's say that he needed a lot of help uh, when he was back there in the green room. And I'll be honest, I was a little angry that he was there. Because I felt like they were going to put him on stage and then what the hell was going to happen. I'll tell you what happened. Uh, When he went out to give his presentation, give his little song and dance, he doddered out onto the stage. The light hit him. And a ROM chip in his head just went... And suddenly he's Jimmy doing and he's... And he's just... Doing the whole thing, man. He is doing the whole song and dance. He is on. He is with it. He is Jimmy doing. He is Scotty. He is all of those things. Presentation ends. Question and answer ends. Light goes down and he daughters off the stage. And he's the guy that I saw back in the green room. Wow. Yeah. And it was very, again, it was very difficult for me to watch that. But I think about that in the context of, of, of Star Trek, of like, of what these actors do and kind of how they over time um, reinterpreted themselves and the audience's expectations for who they were. And then they gave it back to us on screen. It's like, it's such an interesting They gave Scotty back to us, (laughs) Whatever it was, it didn't leave long. Uh, But it was just, I don't know, the psychology of that and just, you know, our relationship with them. And I, I think... You know, the fact that we've had a look, we've had a relationship with these characters now for how long? 55 years. It's a long time, man. A lot of things change in 55 years. Shit. I haven't even been alive for 55 years. Um, but uh, but I think Scotty, Scotty represents that change, I think, better than almost any of the characters. Because well, as you said, sideburns do. Yeah, that's for sure. Oh my God, sideburns. What a bad idea those were. You know, it's like, but he he did start off as somebody who was a serious you know, real character with gravitas, with weight, um, who then suddenly is like, you know, gravity boots. And you're like, oh shit, you know, (laughs) what's, what's happening. Yeah. That's such a great example, Ashley, because yeah, he ends 
you know, uh, he ends with this nonsense with the gravity boots. I don't dance, screaming like a lunatic. You know, when you think of him in that first season of Star Trek, it's, it's like a different, it's a different person. It's like yeah. Paul McCartney and Billy Shears. I mean, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. I, I, it's so interesting because he really has become a parody of himself. He's like out of a Saturday Night Live skit and, and, uh, or, or out of uh, the Ben Stiller show. I'm friends with Scotty, where Ben Stiller <laughs> is, is, you know, wants to be friends with Jimmy. T so funny. That's a great skit. If you haven't seen it, you should look at YouTube. It's, uh, you know, I'm, I want to be friends with Scotty from the Ben Stiller show. It's, it's, it's great. But it's interesting, um, too, that I think that, um, in a way, he was reclaimed. The character of Montgomery Scott was reclaimed by the Next Generation episode Relics. Yeah. From, yeah. from the sixth season. Very much so. You know, and, and how he was shown to be competent. The, the way that he saved himself was ingenious, you know, on the Janolin. And, and when he came back, the, the melancholy he felt, he got to do some great acting. And his character was, was really well written in that episode. And they squander it in generations, giving him all this techno babble. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Got, I mean, and he know, even had a no hard character time had more heart than him. No, and he had a hard time even delivering his lines, which I thought was unfair to the character. Well, he had it. The script they put the script on the helm so he could read off of it, and it sounds like that's exactly what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. You can't expect anybody to be able to memorize this kind of dialogue, even in the prime of their career, let yep. alone at that age. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, that's Montgomery Scott, or Scotty, as we know him, a wonderful character, um, a delightful, that is, is probably one of the best-known characters in all of Star Trek. Yep. It's really interesting. I mean, talk about it having enduring appeal. And that brings us to the final uh, um, entry of uh, this part six of our holiday countdown. And uh, it's a very melancholy pick. Um, when we, we put this character on the list... Um, we did because we love the character and there's new meaning, unfortunately, to this pick because, uh, as we record this, the actor that portrayed them for the first time on screen has passed away most tragically, uh, due to cancer. Um, horrible, horrible, um, you know, a horrible thing. And, uh, Ashley, if you can tell us, uh, as this final tribute to a great, great character in the history of Star Trek, I think you probably guessed by now, but Ash is going to tell you anyway. Um, yeah, Mark, as you said, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bittersweet number 26. Um, you know, this, this character was one of the first new characters in Star Trek from the movie era who really stuck. Uh, and she stuck because she felt like she belonged. She felt like, she was connected to our crew in an organic way um, and that she had something to, to offer them. And obviously, we're talking about Lieutenant Savick. Hold, please. Thank you, sir. Lieutenant, are you wearing your hair differently? It's still regulation, Admiral. Mm -hmm. May I speak, sir? Self-expression doesn't seem to be one of your problems. You're bothered by your performance on the Kobayashi Maru. I fail to resolve the situation. There's no correct resolution. It's a test of character. May I ask how you dealt with the test? You may ask. 
That's a little joke. Humor. It is a difficult concept. It is not logical. We learn by doing. Who's been holding up the damn elevator? Thank you, sir. She changed your hairstyle? I hadn't noticed. Um, originally played by Kirstie Alley, then played by Robin Curtis. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't think that it is overstating the case to say that she shines uh, most brightly in uh, in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, where, you know, we meet her in command of the Enterprise, uh, you know, as part of her Kobayashi Maru test. And we know that she's different almost right away with the damn um, you know, it just everything about her defies expectations. And yet, at the core of it, she is always logical, right? We it's it's interesting that over time, um, you know, we've talked about this a lot, but but Vulcans have developed this reputation among fans, and I think among some of the people who attempt to write Star Trek. Uh, that they don't have emotions and that somehow they don't have personalities or feelings um, underneath the things that they say. And with Savick, what was always so wonderful, especially in Star Trek II, was that you did understand that she had feelings about things. She had strong feelings about things, but she was in control of them. She was in command of them. Um, her relationship with Spock was always interesting. Um, because obviously she, she revered him. She venerated him, but by the same, and she wanted to learn from him by the same token. Um, she was not afraid to say exactly what she thought. You go right on quoting Starfleet regulations. I mean, and she does, uh, you know, it's, it's, she's an incredibly charismatic character. Kirstie Alley brought it just, a, just so much energy to that role. Um, and you know, you, I personally, like at the end of Star Trek 2, I just wanted to see her come back and come back and come back. And she did come back in Star Trek 3 as Robin Curtis. And Robin Curtis is a lovely person. She really is. Um, and Savick had a lot to do in Star Trek 3. Um, I don't know that the Star Trek 3 Savick was quite the Savick that we met in Star Trek 2. And it's not just because of a different actress. No, you're absolutely right. She was an exposition delivery machine in 3. Right. There was no, uh, there was nothing to play. Whereas in the second film, she she fails, she's struggling, she's trying to impress the captain, she, she, she's trying to sublimate her anger because she's part Romulan. Or, yep, right. you know, and so there's so much going on there, right? And she's questioning her choices. Three, she's not a character. She's an exposition delivery machine. She does nothing. And, you know, the, the Savick of Star Trek II, if put in that situation in Star Trek Three, I mean, you would have been able to see the wheels turning on how she was going to get them the hell out of that situation. Um, and poor Robin Curtis was left in a place where, I mean, what was she going to play? What was she going to do? Right? Harv like, couldn't she, write her nearly as well as Nick. Nick no. wrote a character. Harv didn't. No, Harv just wrote dialogue. And yet she has in Star Trek Three an incredibly significant moment with the proto-Spock that's developing on the Genesis planet. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think what's... Again, Robin Curtis begins a long... I think it really began there, began with Star Trek Three, a long line of people that did not know how to play 
Vulcans. But she was directed but not that her way. fault. She was directed right. that way. Oh, yeah. She was directed by the uh, one actor Ironically directed could. by Leonard Nimoy, you yeah. know, and and I think that, looks to me, I, I, I think that Star Trek Three has always been a huge turning point in the franchise and not a good one. Um, from from the the taking Harv's original Return to Genesis story and kind of dumbing it down. I mean, I understand where they're going, why they had to do that, but I think Savik is probably the character that suffered the most. Um, even the performances, I mean, I don't mean to disparage Leonard Nimoy, but... Uh, <laughs> The, the captain of the Grissom. I mean, my God, everybody's a caricature in that movie. The yeah. the performances are 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 not great. But it's no surprise, Rob, that Kirstie Alley became such a successful light comedian because that's mm -hmm. an element that she brought to Star Trek II, two that is nowhere in evidence in three. Not because of mm -hmm. Robin, because it's not in the script. It doesn't exist. No, right? And and she um, changed her hair. But all that stuff is what makes her so likable. I mean, I, I'm not wrong when I say we all fell in love with her in Star Trek. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I oh, mean, yeah. not since like Yvonne. In the Craig, elevator. You know, yeah. yeah. And and the funny thing is, I, I, and I'm only putting the pieces together now, I think one of the reasons that Leonard directed her that way was because he hated uh, what Kirstie did in Star Trek 2 because Kirstie talked about this very late in her career. Um, a lot of people think, oh, she didn't come back because of money or she didn't come back uh, because she had a, 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 an incident with one of the cast members. Um, what actually happened was she thought she was Vivian Lee and that this was going to be this movie that was just a way to that would make her famous. Right. And so she didn't give a shit when she showed up like she would just throw on whatever she wanted. The scene in the elevator it, it, when her hair was down, that was just because she didn't go and get her hair done. <laughs> like she was just, and she, it drove Shatner and Leonard crazy because she wasn't prepared. They, you know, and she ended up having to get, uh, you know, an acting coach during the, which is why so much of that movie is dubbed because her acting, um, you know, this was like her, one of her first roles, right? right? And, and they thought the fact that she wasn't good meant she didn't care. The fact that she cared a lot is just why she got the acting coach, right? Um, which I guess Bob Sound was involved with. So, I think part of the reason that Leonard directed Robin the way he was trying to get away from the performance that Kirsty gave because he didn't like it. And that's also why they got rid of this whole idea that she was half Romulan. Right. Um, and Eddie Egan's talked about the fact that they got rid of it because they just want to confuse the audience that didn't know Star Trek. What does that mean? Half Romulan, half Falcon. It's, it's confusing. So, um, well, there's a lot, a, of, a lot of the, a lot of the speculation about her being half Romulan was that might she be the offspring of Spock's dalliance with the Romulan commander in the Enterprise incident? Yeah, which would be so cool. Yeah. So cool. You can't explore that in a movie, but, no. you know. It had and, and also, I mean, Vonda McIntyre leaned heavily into that in her Wrath right. of Khan and the Star Trek mm -hmm. Three novelizations and really right. did a did a great job. But, yeah, I, I think you're right uh, about all that. It's it's. It's interesting but, because but then it's really let me just say it's really creepy if that's the case that he and Spock well, exactly. and her in Star Trek Three end up exactly yeah. <laughs> it's very Game of Thrones and, yeah. and it, it is it is too bad that that they had to dispense with the notion of bringing her back in Star Trek Six and create a new character but right. I, I'm kind of glad they didn't because I would not have liked it if Savic was the uh, was a co-conspirator in Star Trek Six. It would yeah, have made no sense. It, it is I, illogical. They, no, they yeah. created The only like, way that would have worked for me, and this is like, you know, 
just as rewriting movies that already exist, but fuck it, now we're putting Kirstie Alley in the movie, so why not? Um, the only way I could see it work is she is in it. She can completely articulate the objectives. Um, she can even empathize with those objectives. But at the end, she is the person who turns and says, oh, by the way, like, I've been on the inside the entire mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. right? It's like that kind of a reveal. It's like, because I think the thing that was always, and this is kind of what I said before, but the thing that was always great about Sadik was you would look at her and you would see the wheels turning, yeah. right. right? And it's like, that's what I think, you know, and frankly, I think that Valeris didn't have that uh, in Star Trek VI as, you know, as much as I, I like Kim Cattrall. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason Valeris isn't on our list and um, Savik is. Right. And, and, and you're right. They're very, it's very rare that they introduce a new character to the franchise that you feel belongs as part of the ensemble. And Savik was a character that you would have loved to have seen continue on and mm-hmm. potentially inherit the show. Mm-hmm. Once they got, once they got, you know, older, that she could be the captain or right. she could be the new Spock. You know, but I think they saw that too and didn't like it. The actors, you mm-hmm. know, um, which is, which is a shame because she is so um, delightful. I mean, she has the screwball comedy chops. The scene in the elevator is such a perfect example of that. But um, you know, and 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 the hurt when you know they're stranded on the Genesis planet, and she's asking um, Captain Kirk. She really wants to know how he defeat, and he's he's joking with her. He's dismissive of her, uh, right. you know how he beat the Kobe. And she said, "I really like to know." And that line you know? delivery, dubbed or not, is incredible. Yeah. yeah, one of the things that you got to talk about is the vulnerability she brought to that character mm-hmm. as well, because you know she is a student, and she cares very much about her performance, and and she's trying to learn these things, and it's. It's you see that that and in a way, maybe she brought her newness to acting into that performance because it's mm-hmm. certainly there. And Kirk's so dismissive of her when she says, you know, you shouldn't, you know, you should put up the shields, you shouldn't beam down, you do all this stuff. And he basically is poo-pooing her, and she's right, you right. know, about you know, should have put the shields up when you keep on going on go on quoting orders. I mean, he should bust himself down the private for doing something so stupid. You know, he he's like, you know, he's not going to have this 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 um, cadet tell him the captain what to do. And meanwhile, she was right. So interesting. There's so much going on there that's interesting. And um, uh, you know, and and it's so interesting because even at the funeral, people say, "Oh, it's interesting she has her hair down." It was another example of Kirsty just didn't want to do her hair that day. Didn't didn't go to makeup. But it works. And yet she looks terrific. It's like she just came back from combat training or something. Yeah, you know, I mean, she was in the rec deck fighting. I think Leonard thought she was having too much fun. And and by ha- it's the whole Patrick thing for a season. You're having too yeah. much fun. And if you're having fun, it means you're not taking the work seriously. And I, so, you know, that was how Leonard felt about her. Um, so human. But, uh, but, um, uh, you know, and I think that really colors the way he directed Robin in Star Trek Three. Like I said, I hadn't really thought about this until this conversation, yeah. but it, it all—it's all—it all makes sense. It only took forty years to figure this out, but I think I got it now. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, look, let's talk about Kirsty for a second. Um, yeah, she went on and was great in Cheers, and to step into that role, you know, after Shelley Long, people don't realize now, but Shelley Long was. Huge popular that show Beloved. was was you know immense 
And for her to come in, you know, come in, I mean, how many people step into a hit TV show and, you know, and, and, and replace someone and are able to, uh, well, and, Robin you know, Curtis. Yeah. Right. But arguably, uh, you know, was even more popular than, than Shelley Long. Yeah. You know, amazing. Uh, and, uh, you know, cancer is such an insidious disease. You know, nobody even knew that she was sick. I mean, this is why yeah. it came as such a shock, I think, to all of us, yeah. to everyone, you know, that she had passed away. I mean, you don't expect at her age these days um, for for someone, you know, and any time we lose a member of the Star Trek family, it, it really, you know, it, 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 I mean, when Mark Leonard died, when obviously when Dee died, when Leonard died, that was it's like yeah. a member of your own family. Yeah. Because look at all the time we spent with them, these people. It's like, you know them. In most cases, we did know all them. That Kirsty's probably the only one I never met. Right. Um, but uh, it's sad. You followed them on their adventures. Huh. Hey, I, will, I will read the rest of that teaser. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she had two kids and she was married to a hardy boy. That's true. So. Who, who gave her the big one for a number of years, as she said on the, what was it, the Emmys? Yeah. She thanked her husband. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, it's so, so, so it's a Star Trek connection because you had uh, Sean Cassidy was the one who sang the song for Star Trek Motion Picture and Parker Stevenson was married to Savick. <laughs> there, so, there, there you go. There you go. But what a great character. And it's such a shame that we didn't get to see more, more of her in, in, in the films. Isn't it? It really is. Yeah. I think one of the most interesting things that Eddie Egan told us, uh, well, many interesting things that Eddie told us, uh, was that uh, Kirsty and um, David Marcus, Mary Buttrick, were both cast by um, uh, Gary Nardino, who's the head of the TV division. The only role is not cast by Nick Meyer, but cast by um, Nardino, because the plan had been if if Star Trek II didn't work, they would spin off a TV series with Savick and David Marcus. It's another reason I think the principal cast could stand them. Dallas mm. competition. They are here if cowardice is seen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it, it had to be hard, you know, because she was a fan. She grew up on Star Trek. Yeah. And then she walks into this with these legends, these living legends, you know, and they weren't particularly, I guess, ingratiating to her. Must have been, you know, really intimidating. And, yeah. you know, you know, they expect, uh, expect her to, 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 to you know, be top of her game, and she hadn't really done much. You know, it's funny what you just said about uh, because I didn't know that about the you know Mary Patrick and 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 Kirsty being you know potentially the the uh, the headliners for a new Star Trek series if the movie didn't work out. It's like literally that movie was walking around with its own next generation in it. And maybe yeah. that's one of the things that works, you know, and it's why I like those new characters work inside of it um, because they do kind of tell us something about the characters that we love. So, you know, from that perspective, I think I would, you know, set my way back machine to about 15 minutes ago and Rob talking about how you could wrap Star Trek two around another franchise and it would be the same. I don't know that it would. Um, because I think that what characters like Savick gave us, and frankly, what David Marcus gave us were a, a, a perspective on those original characters that we love. I mean, sure, like, you know, some of them, like, we're not quite as remember, but the fact of the matter is that most of them were day players anyway, and they were still doing more than, like, 
than they had ever done. Um, And, you know, the Savick's great value in Star Trek II was to remind us, I think, what was um, what was what was great about Kirk and Spock and challenge them and kind of and bring out the best in them the way that we were talking about Shelby bringing out the best in Riker um you know and it's just it was it's again it's like we, we've said it but it's it's just it's sad we didn't have more of her and particularly in that incarnation actress aside but you know it, it again it's not like that was even original because that was what Decker was doing to Kirk and Star Trek the motion picture Mm-hmm. Right, but less. Know, and, I think less effectively. Well, I mean, yeah. it doesn't matter. But you're right. I mean, well, I mean, it's it's. I think I think that that when I said that about Star Trek Two, I mean, it obviously Star Trek Two is Star Trek Two, and it's great, and and I wouldn't say that it isn't. But there, there's also a lot of tropes that mm-hmm. Nicholas Meyer uses very effectively in Star Trek Two the the teacher student relationship and and. Um, the the captain that doesn't know everything that the, the 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 young the young ensign that has something to say i mean there's a lot of tropes in star trek 2 that that are effectively used but tropes nonetheless but i think mm-hmm. it helps meyer to explore this idea of our characters aging and losing a step yes. by having as a counterpoint the people who are saying hey boomer you know who are who are the young the young generation Yep. You know, it's just the, the the cast, unfortunately, was fighting that with every fiber of their being yeah. because they didn't want to be replaced. And it's a shame that there wasn't an organic transition to a younger cast. No, it's true. And and it's interesting because of all the people that could have made that, Kirstie Alley's performance as Savick is probably number one on that list of somebody yep. that could have easily been carried Star Trek forward. Yeah, and it's interesting because for a long time, she didn't want to talk about Star Trek too, mm-hmm. you know, and she didn't want to talk about Star Trek. She's always made it for years. I tried to get her for interviews and stuff. And, it, you know, it's only in the last year or two or really since that creation 50th that she's even been willing to, to talk about it. So, um, you know, it, the, the whole thing is very fascinating to coin a phrase. Mm. But, uh, anyway, uh, it's very sad, you know, obviously for her family and for the larger Star Trek family that has lost uh, a member of the crew that they, they love. And someone, you know, as as I pointed out, I went to go see some horrible movies because she was in it. I went to see Runaway, ugh, uh. with Gene Simmons. <laughs> that was terrible. But Kirstie Alley was in it. I had to go see it. And I watched Masquerade, terrible series on TV. I watched it every week because Kirstie Alley was in it. <laughs> Me too. Anyway, so goodbye, farewell, and amen. Uh, and that's uh, number 26 on our countdown, Lieutenant Savick. And uh, by the way, we, we also have to say that Robin Curtis is alive and well and, and one of the most wonderful people on the planet. Just as, lovely. Just lovely. Oh, and, and let's not forget that Robin Curtis got brought back on The Next Generation in the seventh season, two-parter Gambit. Yep. She was and she's awesome. great in it. And she's mm-hmm. great. She was awesome in that episode. Yeah. And she wasn't and she, half Romulan. She was, wait, she was she Romulan. Was all of Vulcan oh, in one package. All Vulcan. Yeah, she was, yes. she was Vulcan intelligence or whatever she was. She was That's great. Right. Was she tell yeah. she are? I don't remember. No, the hell she are is Rymelin. Oh yes. Yeah. Oh my no, god. She I'm was great as, as a Vulcan and, and it's it's interesting because I forgot I forgot to mention that well, she did come back and I gotta tell you, great. we're great as podcast hosts, but our time for part six <laughs> of the holiday coming countdown is coming to an end because this was another marathon session. And I want to thank all of you for being a part of it. I want to thank the great Mark Rivera, who's been mixing these, who's back in the mixing booth, doing a f- fantastic job. Uh, and it's not easy to keep up with us and all our interrupting and 
jumping and excitement and thrills and spills and clips and everything else. So uh, we thank him. We thank Peter Holstrom, our producer and archivist. And uh, we thank you, the audience, for once again joining us for this uh, epic countdown of the greatest Star Trek characters of all time. And you can share where what you think uh, on Twitter and Inglorious Trek on Instagram and Inglorious Trexperts on Facebook and Inglorious Trexperts. And one day we may even post a Mastodon, but that has not happened as of this date. But perhaps we will one of these days. But and to uh, to uh, help us out a little more, and if you want to be a subscriber and get access to our wonderful Deck 78 episodes, uh, all you got to do is go to trexpertsplus.com and uh, subscribe and uh, get all the more wonder out of it. And uh, you can follow Rob Burnett on Twitter and Instagram, and you can listen to him daily on the Burnett Work on YouTube. So check him out. You too can become an imagination connoisseur and see <laughs> Rob hold court daily from his Observatory in some undisclosed location. Um, and uh, good for him. I hope we hope you feel better, Rob. Yeah, this made me feel much better. As when the world was young. Do you feel young? God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> And on that note, <laughs> we'll see you next time on the Holiday Countdown as it continues, as we continue with number 25. We're getting close to number one. <laughs> what will it be? The only way to find out is to keep watching the skies and listening to Inglorious Trexperts. So on behalf of Robert Meyer Burnett, Ashley Edward Miller, Darren Docterman, and myself, Mark A. Altman, keep on trekking ingloriously, of course. Shh. <laughs>